From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis, and joining me on the panel this week are VOA congressional correspondent Catherine Gibson and Washington correspondent for Project 10 TV Australia, Michael Williams. Welcome, Catherine and Michael. Good to be here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, here are the issues. President Biden delivered his second State of the Union address at a critical juncture midway through his four-year presidency. The speech came as Biden struggles with mediocre approval ratings, the realities of a divided Congress, and the looming start of the 2024 election campaign. The president began the evening by politely recognizing House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, and referring to, quote, my Republican friends. Despite pledges from McCarthy to uphold decorum, Republicans made their dismay vocally obvious at several points during Biden's address. It was a far more aggressive display of dissent than the simple silence the opposition party has traditionally deployed during past State of the Union addresses. Biden, however, seized on Republican denials he heard in the chamber to cast the reactions as bipartisan commitments negotiated live in front of millions of viewers. The House unanimously approved a resolution on Thursday condemning the Chinese Communist Party's use of a spy balloon over the continental U.S., labeling the situation, quote, a brazen violation of United States sovereignty, unquote. The resolution, which cleared the chamber in a bipartisan 419 to zero vote, came to the House floor five days after the U.S. shot down the Chinese spy balloon off the South Carolina coast, intensifying tensions between Washington and Beijing. The death toll from earthquakes that struck Turkey and Syria surpassed at least 20,000 as hopes faded of many people being found alive 72 hours since the disaster. Turkey's President Tayyip Erdogan is facing a crescendo of criticism over his response, while Syria's President Bashar al-Assad is pressing for foreign aid to be delivered through his territory as he aims to chip away at his international isolation. The United States has mobilized rescue and search teams to support relief efforts. Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. Well, Catherine, during a lively 73 minutes on Capitol Hill, Biden, in his State of the Union address, credited bipartisan problem-solving for economic strides and told Americans that other benefits, lower costs for insulin under Medicare and investments in clean energy, for instance, happened on his watch. So overall, what were some big takeaways from his speech? Well, it certainly was a message of bipartisanship, Kim, and that's something that we really could come to expect from President Biden. Since he's so familiar with Capitol Hill, he was in the U.S. Senate for decades. He knows the ins and outs of negotiating and how all of this works. So this was really a proposal on his part saying, look, we passed some big bipartisan legislation last year together. We can do this again, even though there is a Republican majority U.S. House of Representatives. Now, that said, even though it was a very strong bipartisan message, I was outside the House chamber talking to members of Congress after that speech, and that message really didn't get through to a lot of the Republicans that I was speaking with. One thing that really poisoned the well for them was that moment when Biden pretty much 
not tricked them, but played a gambit where they basically were induced into agreeing that they would not cut Social Security in return for raising the debt ceiling. It was really a pretty unusual moment in terms of the State of the Union. A lot of Republicans were very upset about that moment and said that it ruined Biden's message of bipartisanship. So it'll be really interesting to see how they play their way out of that position and whether eventually they do agree to some bipartisan legislation like they did last year. And, you know, I'll just jump in and say that uh, it's interesting Kim, that you opened with noting that it was a 73-minute speech, which is uh, relatively long, sort of sort of in the middle of the road for a uh, State of the Union speech. But it, Joe Biden loves that moment. He lives for that moment. He took about as long to get in and out of the room, shaking hands and greeting people and politicking as he did to give the entire speech. That's how much he loves that room. One of the most intimidating rooms on the planet, by the way. And he just relishes that environment. And he knows that environment so very well, the politics of it. I would say he's put in as much time as anybody ever in that room and in that environment. So that moment when he was talking to that audience and to the broader audience at home about a commitment to welfare amid what was immediately an explanation and uh, confirmation of his accomplishments over his whole two years, a, a series of claims that were more or less true, some things that were sort of half-truths and a little edgy and smudgy and that sort of thing. But again, that's something that presidents do in the State of the Union. They tell their side of the story, not the other side. But when he did get that agreement from part of the Republican Party sitting in the room that they would not cut benefits. It was just a masterstroke. And I think it sort of plays up to the fact that Joe Biden, you might want to call him the first prime minister of the United States of America, because he's dealing with three parties, his Democratic Party, the, let's say, Mitt Romney, sort of traditional Republicans, and the MAGA confrontational wing of that party that will have nothing to do with almost anything that he suggests. But there is a part of that party that is able to be convinced to do good things, to actually negotiate and legislate. And I just think he was masterful in the way that he uh, called out to that party and got a response in the room. That's such a great point that he's the first parliamentary president because he's dealing with such a parliamentary atmosphere. We've seen kind of a decline in the decorum at States of the Union in the past few years. A lot of people may remember when a member of Congress yelled liar at former President Barack Obama during the State of the Union. And we saw this again the other night when Joe Biden was talking about the number of fentanyl deaths and someone yelled out, that's your fault, you're responsible for it. Also in the confrontation with Marjorie Taylor Greene. So, you know, it's really, this is something that would have been unheard of in past states of the union. And Biden was really able to respond in the moment and handle that quite well. A lot of the Republicans I talked to right after the speech said that they were a little uncomfortable with the confrontational tone that some of the members of their party were taking towards President Biden, that, you know, that it's okay to disagree with the president. They should be disagreeing with the president, just not in that form, in that manner. But it's really indicative of the way that this wing of the Republican Party is going to try to govern or not govern. Yeah, I think that that group that you mentioned, that confrontational group, as you say, they're not really interested in being anything other than confrontational because that's what serves them. That's what got them on their ballots. That's what got them to victory in their respective districts. And what keeps them in the spotlight for a very narrow audience that consists completely of their voting district, the 50.1% that voted for them, 
and conservative news outlets. And as long as they can be in the spotlight for those groups of people, they can fundraise and run for re-election. That's all they're concerned with. And this group of people, you do not have a chance to deal with them and to govern effectively. However, Joe Biden has a group that he can speak to. He has a group of people that he can listen to. And I think even Kevin McCarthy wants to do certain things. He wants to have achievements in the speakership that he has waited so long to get his hands on. And you could see his discomfort, really, his disapproval when he's sort of shushing members of his caucus as they were so raucous and so rowdy. But Again, it's going to be indicative of his ability to manage that caucus on a day-to-day basis because they completely ignored him like a substitute teacher. I mean, he just has very little authority with that group of people, very little. Yes, and highlighting topics that could feature prominently in a re-election campaign, Biden said the economy was benefiting from 12 million new jobs and that COVID-19 no longer controls American lives. So with Americans still dealing with inflation, high food and gas prices, and just trying to make ends meet, how do you think Americans responded to Biden's focus on these issues? That's right. So it was a very domestic speech. It was unusually short, even for a State of the Union on international affairs issues. But Biden had to do that, even though this is him in his capacity as a president of the United States. He's also going to be a presidential candidate within the next few months, and he's going to be running for re-election. So he has to make that case to the American people that not only has he gotten these accomplishments, cut the rate of inflation, gotten more jobs on the books, that he can do even more in the coming months ahead if he can follow through and work out that message of bipartisanship. Whether or not that really trickles down to the actual daily level of daily life for Americans is really the million-dollar question. Because we're so divided in this country, It's really a question of whether this State of the Union speech changes anybody's mind, or are we just set in our camps and set in our ideas about what's going to work for this country or not? Something that's going to be set in the House chamber in Washington may not be the thing changing their minds. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you raise that. What are going to be the policies that Joe Biden is really going to sit on and press on for legislative success in the remaining two years of his presidency? And then he is presumably going to run again. So what will he do to extend that? And look, things like lower costs for health care, lower costs for drugs, clean water, for goodness sake, for kids and, and everyone in these in communities that have toxic, rusty infrastructure, crumbling infrastructure. These are things that help everybody and should be favored by everyone. But it's difficult, again, when you have this contentiousness that's being put forward as the basis for how you get into office and how you manage yourself in office. Look, I I think Biden has an opportunity to hammer out, as he's done in his first two years, some very very tough, but very, very bipartisan agreements. And I think that's actually a very good thing because those issues that are legislated in that way have an opportunity to be touted and let's say everyone can take credit for it and everyone can benefit from it. These are the things that are enduring. These are the things that last. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a big grandiose thing that happens when one party controls all the levers of government because when the other party takes over, the first thing they want to do is overthrow those things. I kind of like the idea that they are working to compromise and persuade each other to get policies and legislation that really benefit all Americans. 
That's such a great point because in all of these partisan debates, we forget that in a system of checks and balances in the U.S. government, this is how a democracy is supposed to be working. And for a long time, compromise has been this dirty word that you shouldn't be making compromises. But that's how you really bring people together, how you keep a nation held together by recognizing what the other side's needs are, making some inroads, taking some compromises, and really working out what's best for everyone. So this is the argument that Joe Biden made. Whether or not it'll hold when we have this looming debt ceiling crisis that's coming up at the end of May, beginning of June, when really some really tough choices have to be made, when Speaker Kevin McCarthy has to really be fully in control of his entire Republican caucus to make sure that Congress agrees to raise the debt ceiling, because the consequences are catastrophic. Very good points that you all are making. Let's move on to our next topic, where the House unanimously approved a resolution on Thursday condemning the Chinese Communist Party's use of a spy balloon over the continental U.S., labeling the situation, quote, a brazen violation of U.S. sovereignty, unquote. So, Catherine, can you tell us more about this? That's right. We learned a lot more about the decision-making process behind shooting down that Chinese balloon on Thursday. U.S lawmakers got a chance to hear from both State Department and Defense Department officials, and they really were demanding answers about why it took so long to shoot down that balloon, why it was allowed to cross the entire United States and then reach South Carolina before being shot down, and whether we think that this is a constant problem that the United States now needs to be worried about. Defense Department officials, of course, defended that decision to wait a couple of days for the balloon to reach the South Carolina coast, saying that there were a very complex set of calculations, including what would happen if they shot down the balloon over a populated area, whether or not the balloon was actually collecting sensitive intelligence from the United States, if that was a risk. And they said that ultimately what they were going to be able to learn from the shot down balloon was also a consideration, that they're now learning a lot more about what exactly this balloon has been doing over the United States. They also argued that more answers could be given inside a classified briefing that wasn't in front of the public. A lot of the Republican senators coming out of that classified briefing were still left unsatisfied about the answers they'd been given. Remember, there is an element of politics in this as well. They want to show that President Biden isn't being strong on national security, isn't standing up to China. But in a broader sense, this just illustrates the need to think in detail about the U.S.-China relationship. And if it's had any good, it's really focused the American public's attention on this issue and made a lot of people realize that this really is a looming competition, if not conflict, in the years and decades ahead for the U.S. And Catherine, I just really have to smile when um, you say that it, it takes this balloon, literally a bright, shiny object, to actually focus the attention so so of the American populace on the security issues. And interestingly enough, surveillance balloons have been a part of military strategy since the French Revolution. They've been around for a long, long time. And the Chinese have acknowledged that they want to have this fleet of surveillance balloons is their attempt to dominate what they call near space, which is not the aircraft level, not the outer space level, which includes satellites, but that sort of strata in between. The U.S. has seen these incursions multiple times, sometimes during the Trump administration, other times during the Biden administration. And the security officials and military officials noted that they saw 
the balloon coming when it entered Alaskan airspace, but that they raised their level of alarm when it headed toward the continental U.S. Prior to that, it was sort of the U.S. gathering intelligence about Chinese intelligence gathering capabilities and, and monitoring that balloon. Look, the balloon is gone now. It's shot down. And let's we should also note that this isn't like a party balloon and one of the things that you see with a couple of people in a basket. This thing is like 1,500 meters. Okay, it's a big thing. So you did have to make considerations about what is underneath it when they took it down. But also, now that it's down, nations spy on each other. They collect and gather information. We gather information about our adversaries. We gather information, probably even more, about our friends, about our allies. But the important thing is that these two countries, the U.S. and China, remain in communication outside of the espionage level because there's too much at stake for the world in terms of security, uh, in terms of a stable economy, for it to be otherwise. So I'm very encouraged by the fact that the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, said that his trip to China was postponed and not canceled. That means that they recognize the importance of the ongoing dialogue between them and will continue it despite these types of things, which, again, will continue to happen. Yes, very good. But it's time now for a quick break. And when we return, a look at rescue operations in Turkey and Syria for survivors of powerful earthquakes that so far have taken thousands of lives. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com issues. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype, VOA Congressional Correspondent Catherine Gibson and Washington Correspondent for Project 10 TV Australia, Michael Williams. While the death toll from the earthquake that struck Turkey and Syria is surpassing at least 20,000 at this time, and hopes fade of many people being found alive 72 hours since the disaster, Turkey's President Tayyip Erdogan is facing a crescendo of criticism over his response, while Syria's President Bashar al-Assad is pressing for foreign aid to be delivered. So at this point, what more do we know about the rescue operations? Well, I'll say this event is happening in an area that was one of the areas that can least afford and absorb something like this. It's just tragedy on such a broad and deep scale in an area that has already absorbed so much tragedy and most of that man-made in terms of war and conflict. The human response that needs to happen is being hindered by the politics and the conflicts that existed in the region already. You have Erdogan on one side and Assad on the other, both trying to manipulate and control both their appearance to the outside world while internally trying to control resources, determine who gets the right to clear roads that allow humanitarian aid efforts to go, where that humanitarian aid effort will be stored, which people get access to it, that human conflict is exacerbating, which is already an enormous human tragedy. Hopefully, this tragedy will cause some realization that there's a need for unity and a setting aside of hostilities in order to get people the help that they so desperately need. That's right. It, it's such a staggering death toll, and we unfortunately know that it's going to be probably much more as this shifts to a recovery effort, as Michael mentioned. Talking to Republicans and Democrats across the aisles Tuesday night after the State of the Union speech, there was certainly a sense that as much as the U.S. wants and needs to send aid to help address in any way they can this crisis, 
it is indeed complicated by the situation on the ground there. The politics of it all, as Michael mentioned, it's really unfortunate to know that we probably can't help in as much of a way as we want to, and that this is going to be something that is going to have consequences for many years and decades to come as we see refugees coming out of that area because of this earthquake, and we see, you know, continued economic effects. It's going to be something that the U.S. is going to have to probably be assisting with for quite some time, at least that's the sense when I was talking to lawmakers on Capitol Hill about it. The world is still working to assimilate refugees from crises in the Turkey and Syria border, a war in Aleppo. These situations have created a humanitarian and an immigration situation that Western Europe is still grappling with. So to have more on top of that even puts more stress on, let's say, the fault lines of society. They're just as stressed as the fault lines underneath the territory in that area. Yes, and just to quickly mention, Afghanistan's militant Taliban rulers will send $165,000 worth of aid to Turkey and Syria following the disaster. And as we know, Afghanistan's population is living in near universal poverty. They're facing a dire humanitarian crisis of its own. So for them to be able to do this, is it surprising that Afghanistan is able to contribute? It's surprising that Afghanistan is able to contribute, but not unheard of. It's a, something of a reversal of roles. We remember that Afghanistan, of course, accepted so much international aid over the past decade, two decades, and now that's flipped and reversed. And, you know, every country looks to have influence and power in its region. So this isn't an unexpected move by the Taliban government. And we should remember also that the people of Afghanistan, unfortunately, are no strangers to earthquakes also. They have suffered some very unfortunate disasters as well. So this is something that the people of Afghanistan know all too well. Well, it's time now to find out what is on the minds of our panelists. Catherine, what is weighing on your mind this week? Well, we keep talking about the State of the Union, but it is one of the big kind of major events in the year of a congressional reporter. And I've been lucky for the past six or seven years to be right outside the House chamber when the president is addressing the U.S. Congress. And every year when I'm standing there, I wish that I could show that scene to our listeners, to our viewers all around the world so that they can understand that, well, there may be some conflicts between the president and Republicans that may look undignified at some moments. The scene outside the House chamber really has stayed the same. There is a sense of power and ceremony, watching the entire U.S. Senate walk in to meet the president, watching the U.S. Supreme Court process in. They really do have this look on their faces, that they understand the gravity of this moment, that this is a moment when the United States steps back and looks at how it wants to proceed for the next year. That is really a special moment, and I'm just trying to share it in any small way with your listeners. Thank you. That's a nice comment. And Michael? Two things on my mind. One is that I believe I said that that Chinese balloon was 1,500 meters, and I meant 150 meters. So that's the first thing that's on my mind. Let's get that one out of the way. I was sort of thinking in the same way as Catherine about the State of the Union and this sort of august and very formal and stately affair. And being a Washington, D.C. native, I feel that way about all of government. I hold it in high regard. I revere those halls and what happens there. And the 118th Congress just seated, and you have committee hearings being held now. And again, they're being held in a very partisan and combative and fashion with a lot of rancor. And this was predictable. We knew that it was going to happen, the way the committees are being constructed and who's sitting on them. But it just leaves me to wonder 
a government, the root of that word is govern. And someone has to govern. And it seems to me that even with President Biden's State of the Union speech, he was in campaign mode. Everyone on these committees, everyone in Congress is constantly in campaign mode. We're in this perpetual campaign mode. And when will we stop? When will we get a group of people who really feels compelled very seriously to stop campaigning and to start governing? We need it sooner rather than later. Okay, thank you. And we will close the show on those notes. My thanks go to our panelists this week, BOA Congressional Correspondent Catherine Gibson and Washington Correspondent for Project 10 TV Australia, Michael Williams. I'm Kim Lewis, and be sure to join us next week as we discuss issues in the news on The Voice of America. 